Chapter Eight, Part One of Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. Chapter Eight, Part One. Scouting from the Skies. From the moment when human flight was lifted from the rut of experiment to the field of practical application, many theories interesting and illuminating concerning the utility of the fourth arm as a military unit were advanced the general consensus of expert opinion was that the flying machine would be useful to glean information concerning the movements of an enemy rather than as a weapon of offence the war is substantiating this argument very completely although bomb dropping is practised somewhat extensively the results achieved are rather moral than material in their effects here and there startling successes have been recorded especially upon the british side but these triumphs are outnumbered by the failures in this direction and merely serve to emphasize the views of the theorists the argument was also advanced that in this particular work the aeroplane would prove more valuable than the dirigible but actual campaigning has proved conclusively that the dirigible and the heavier-than-air machines have their respective fields of utility in the capacity of scouts in fact in the very earliest days of the war the british airships though small and slow in movement proved more serviceable for this duty than their dynamic consorts this result was probably due to the fact that military strategy and tactics were somewhat nonplussed by the appearance of this new factor at the time it was an entirely unknown quantity it is true that aircraft had been employed in the balkan and the italo-ottoman campaigns but upon such a limited scale as to afford no comprehensive idea of their military value and possibilities the belligerents therefore were caught somewhat at a disadvantage and an appreciable period of time elapsed before the significance of the aerial force could be appreciated while means of counteracting or nullifying its influences had to be evolved simultaneously and according to the exigencies of the moment at all events the protagonists were somewhat loath to utilize a dirigible upon an elaborate scale or in an aggressive manner it was employed more after the fashion of a captive balloon being sent aloft from a point well behind the front lines of the force to which it was attached and well out of the range of hostile guns its maneuvers were somewhat circumscribed and were carried out at a safe distance from the enemy dependence being placed upon the advantages of an elevated position for the gathering of information but as the campaign progressed the airships became more daring their ability to soar to a great height offered them complete protection against gunfire and accordingly sallies over the hostile lines were carried out but even here a certain hesitancy became manifest this was perfectly excusable for the simple reason that the dirigible above all is a fair-weather craft and disasters which had overtaken these vessels time after time rendered prudence imperative moreover but little was known of the range and destructiveness of anti-aircraft guns in the duty of reconnoitering the dirigible processes one great advantage over its heavier-than-air rival it can remain virtually stationary in the air the propellers revolving at just sufficient speed to offset the wind and tendencies to drift in other words it has a power of hovering over a position thereby enabling the observers to complete their task carefully and with deliberation
On the other hand, the means of enabling an aeroplane to hover still remains to be discovered. It must travel at a certain speed through the air to maintain its dynamic equilibrium, and this speed is often too high to enable the airman to complete his reconnaissance with sufficient accuracy to be of value to the forces below. All that the aeroplane can do is to circle above a certain position until the observer is satisfied with the data he has collected. But hovering on the part of the dirigible is not without conspicuous drawbacks. The work of observation cannot be conducted with any degree of accuracy at an excessive altitude. Experience has proved that the range of the latest types of anti-aircraft weapons is in excess of anticipations. The result is that the airship is useless when hovering beyond the zone of fire. The atmospheric haze, even in the clearest weather, obstructs the observer's vision. The caprices of this obstacle are extraordinary, as anyone who has indulged in ballooning knows fully well. On a clear summer's day, I have been able to see the ground beneath with perfect distinctness from a height of 4,500 feet. Yet, when the craft had ascended a further two or three hundred feet, the panorama was blurred. A film of haze lies between the balloon and the ground beneath, and the character of this haze is continually changing, so that the aerial observer's task is rendered additionally difficult. Its effects are particularly noticeable when one attempts to photograph the view unfolded below plate after plate may be exposed and nothing will be revealed yet at a slightly lower altitude the plates may be exposed and perfectly sharp and well-defined images will be obtained seeing that the photographic eye is keener and more searching than the human organ of sight it is obvious that this haze constitutes a very formidable obstacle German military observers, who have accompanied the Zeppelins and Parsevals on numerous aerial journeys under varying conditions of weather, have repeatedly drawn attention to this factor and its caprices, and have not hesitated to venture the opinion that it would interfere seriously with military aerial reconnaissances, and although it would tend to render such work extremely hazardous at times. When these conditions prevail, the dirigible must carry out its work upon the broad lines of the aeroplane. It must descend to the level where a clear view of the ground may be obtained, and in the interests of safety, it has to keep on the move. To attempt to hover within 4,000 feet of the ground is to court certain disaster, inasmuch as the vessel offers a magnificent and steady target which the average gunner, equipped with the latest sighting devices and the most recent types of guns, scarcely could fail to hit. But the airman in the aeroplane is able to descend to a comparatively low level in safety. The speed and mobility of his machine constitute his protection. He can vary his altitude, perhaps only thirty or forty feet, with ease and rapidity, and this erratic movement is more than sufficient to perplex the marksman below. Although the airman is endangered if a rafale is fired in such a manner as to cover a wide zone. Although the aeroplane may travel rapidly, it is not too fleet for a keen observer who is skilled in his peculiar task. He may only gather a rough idea of the disposition of troops, their movements, the lines of communication, and other details which are indispensable to his commander, but in the main the intelligence will be fairly accurate. Undulating flight enables him to determine speedily the altitude at which he is able to obtain the clearest views of the country beneath. Moreover, owing to his speed, he is able to complete his task in far less time than his colleague operating in the dirigible, 
the result being that the information placed at the disposal of his superior officers is more to the moment and accordingly of greater value reconnoitering by airplane may be divided into two broad categories which though correlated to a certain degree are distinctive because each constitutes a specific phase in military operations they are known respectively as tactical and strategical movements the first is somewhat limited in its scope as compared with the latter and has invariably to be carried out rapidly whereas the strategical reconnaissance may occupy several hours the tactical reconnaissance concerns the corps or divisional commander to which the warplane is attached, and consequently its task is confined to the observation of the line immediately facing the particular corps or division. The aviator does not necessarily penetrate beyond the lines of the enemy, but as a rule limits his flight to some distance from his outermost defenses the airman must possess a quick eye because his especial duty is to note the disposition of the troops immediately facing him the placing of the artillery and any local movements of the forces that may be in progress consequently the aviator engaged on this service may be absent from his lines for only a few minutes comparatively speaking the intelligence he acquires must be speedily communicated to the force to which he is attached, because it may influence a local movement. The strategical reconnaissance, on the other hand, affects the whole plan of campaign. The aviators told off for this duty are attached to the staff of the commander-in-chief, and the work has to be carried out upon a far more comprehensive and elaborate scale. While the airmen are called upon to penetrate well into the hostile territory to a point thirty, forty, or more miles beyond the outposts. The procedure is to instruct the flyer either to carry out his observations of the territory generally, or to report at length upon a specified stretch of country. In the latter event, he may fly to and fro over the area in question until he has acquired all the data it is possible to collect. His work not only comprises the general disposition of troops, defenses, placing of artillery, points where reserves are being held, high roads, railways, base camps, and so forth, but he is also instructed to bring back as correct an idea as possible of what the enemy proposes to do, so that his commander-in-chief may adjust his moves accordingly in order to perform this task with the requisite degree of thoroughness it is often necessary for the airman to remain in the air for several hours continuously not returning in fact until he has completed the allotted duty the airman engaged in strategical aerial reconnaissance must possess above all things what is known as a military eye concerning the country he traverses he must form tolerably correct estimates of the forces beneath and their character. He must possess the ability to read a map rapidly as he moves through the air, and to note upon it all information which is likely to be of service to the general staff. The ability to prepare military sketches rapidly and intelligibly is a valuable attribute, and skilled in aerial photography is a decidedly useful acquisition such men must be of considerable stamina inasmuch as great demands are made upon their powers of endurance being aloft for several hours imposes a severe tax upon the nervous system while it must also be borne in mind that all sorts and conditions of weather are likely to be encountered more particularly during the winter hail 
rain, and blizzards may be experienced in turn, while the extreme cold, which often prevails in the higher altitudes during the winter season, is a fearful enemy to combat. Often, an airman, upon his return from such a reconnaissance, has been discovered to be so numbed and dazed as a result of the prolonged exposure that considerable time has elapsed before he has been sufficiently restored to set forth the results of his observations in a coherent, intelligible manner for the benefit of the general staff. Under these circumstances, it is not surprising that the most skillful and experienced aviators are generally reserved for this particular work. In addition to the natural accidents to which the strategical aerial observer is exposed, the dangers arising from hostile gunfire must not be overlooked. He is maneuvering the whole time over the enemy's firing zone, where anti-aircraft weapons are disposed strategically, and where every effort is made by artillery to bring him down, or compel him to repair to such a height as to render observation with any degree of accuracy well-nigh impossible. The methods practiced by the German aerial scout vary widely, and are governed in no small measure by the intrepidity and skill of the airman himself. One practice is to proceed alone upon long flights over the enemy's lines, penetrating just as far into hostile territory as the pilot considers advisable, and keeping, of course, within the limits of the radius of action of the machine as represented by the fuel supply the while carefully taking mental stock of all that he observes below. It is a kind of roving commission without any definite aim in view beyond the collection of general intelligence. This work, while productive and valuable to a certain degree, is attended with grave danger, as the German airmen have repeatedly found to their cost. Success is influenced very materially by the accuracy of the airman's judgment a slight miscalculation of the velocity and direction of the wind or failure to detect any variations in the climatic conditions is sufficient to prove his undoing german airmen who essayed journeys of discovery in this manner often fail to regain their lines because they venture too far misjudged the speed of the wind which was following them on the outward run and ultimately were forced to earth owing to the exhaustion of the fuel supply during the homeward trip the increased task imposed upon the motor, which had to battle hard to make headway, caused the fuel consumption per mile to exceed calculations. Then, the venturesome airman cannot neglect another factor which is adverse to his success. Hostile airmen be in wait, and a fleet of aeroplanes is kept ready for instant service. They permit the invader to penetrate well into their territory, and then ascend behind him to cut off his retreat. True, the invader has the advantage of being on the wing, while the other is wide and deep, without any defined channels of communication. But nine times out of ten, the adventurous scout is trapped. His chances of escape are slender, because his antagonists dispose themselves strategically in the air. The invader outpaces one, but in so doing, comes within range of another. He is so harassed that he either has to give fight, or finding his retreat hopelessly cut off, he makes a determined dash, trusting to his high speed to carry him to safety. In these driving tactics, the French and British airmen have proved themselves adepts, more particularly the latter, as a chase appeals to their sporting instincts. There is nothing so exhilarating as a quarry who displays a determination to run the gauntlet. End of chapter 8, part 1 Recording by William Tomko.